So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Welcome back to Drink in the Movies. We're talking about some old movies today. How old are these movies? Do you hear that, Michael? What do you hear? Nothing. That's how old these movies are. They're silent movies. Well played, well played. 100 years ago, this year, these films apparently were released. I honestly didn't do my homework. I don't know when the shooting schedule was for these. I don't know when they were technically distributed or where, what country they went wide in. But these are listed in Letterboxd and IMDb and broadly as 1921 films. So We go by IMDb here on Drink in the Movies. Uh, unless we're referencing Letterboxd, I honestly couldn't tell you. But we, we do reference a website and we don't double check it because we're yeah. empirical and we're never wrong because we never check to see if we're wrong. That's how we do it. Um but Word. I had postulated to you that I, I would like to, now that we're really getting into some film history years, uh, do some reflections, you know, as long as the podcast runs once a year of three titles from 100 years ago, just to kind of see what the history of cinema looks like at scale. And we're starting with 1921 because it's 2021. Good year. Good year for film. Yeah. I thought we were <laughs> describing wine. Good year. Good year. <laughs> yeah, I am right there with you. I like returning to the roots every once in a while. I think it's fun and uh, refreshing to uh, go back to the foundations periodically. Yeah. Um, I, I think before we get started on this episode, I, I did just want to talk to you broadly. Um, we haven't done our first impressions yet. We'll, we'll get to that. But just um, at a larger level. Um, February 1918. Mean anything to you? No. It's the start of the Spanish flu. Mm. Interesting. Okay. H1N1. Mm. Up to 100 million dead. Whoa. Ended April 1920. Mm. Um, the, the average, I believe, is 50 million agreed upon deaths. With a maximum of 100 million and a minimum of 17 million. That tells you how hard it was to tell. And remember, this is coming off of the end of the First World War. Mm. Um, I think that it's important to frame that, not, not only for a discussion today, but for, you know, just a look at the, this word that I know you love. I, I know you love this word, but it, it's important to know the zeitgeist mm. of 1921. Um, and there's a, there's a bigger word than zeitgeist that is, you know, very scholarly and rarely used. It's called the Weltgeist. And the Weltgeist is this thing that you can't really judge. Um, you, you can only talk about it kind of ethereally and, and make homage to it. And it's made up of all the zeitgeists and it's made up of all the future, the, the ghosts of the future and, and what possibilities there are, the, the things in the past. And I think that when we look at these films from the 1920s, and specifically in 1921, it's very apparent that the specter of death is a large specter on the thoughts of the people of that day and the artists of that day. Mm, I like it. Important to put things in context. And Good stuff. we are in the midst of our own um, much less dangerous than the Spanish flu um, coronavirus, you know, not mm. nearly 100 million dead. Um, mm -hmm. but we, we are going through our own thing a hundred years later, kind of in context with that. And I, I think it is interesting to frame the conversation in the circumstance of what these artists were speaking to. Um, also notably, this is a point in time where, uh, the screenplay for the Phantom Carriage was co-written by writer Salma Lagerlof. Um, 1909, she was the first female to ever win the Nobel Prize for Literature, 1909. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it's very rarely that we get to discuss films in which the first woman to ever win an award in that subject wrote on. 
or directed mm. or anything like that. So I, I did just want to bring that up before we get going. I like it. Good background. Appreciate it. All right. Should we do first impressions and just kind of throw this whole thing on its head before we get back to the depressing, bleak orphans of the storm? Yeah, these are not silent movies, as people might have guessed. Yes, these are first impressions of films that are coming out. Let's do it. It's up. One day it'll go quiet. I don't imagine that anyone goes in for a robbery if they're not in some kind of desperation. I've been at this a while now, and it's no secret what my face looks like. Get on the ground! The one thing about robbing banks is you're mostly robbing women, so the last thing you want to be is rude. Ma'am, it's nothing personal. All right, we just watched the trailer for Cherry from the Russo Brothers starring Tom Holland. What do you think of this one? Um, well, I mean, to think about it, you have to kind of frame it. You know, the Russo Brothers are most famous for um, kind of stewarding one of the greatest cinematic franchises of all time. The One of the greatest? Dan Harmon's Community. Oh, good one. Okay, oh, okay. Nicely played. Hey. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, but, you know, they also did something, I think, with um, Disney, was it? Marvel, maybe? I forget. Something like that. Tom Holland is Aquaman? Is that right? Um, so, Cherry. Um, Russo Brothers, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, they've been playing around with no stakes for a long time. They've made, um, you know... Heroes who don't die feel like they have stakes, and that that's really hard. But what I'm interested about in this film is this is a human with human stakes. This, this reminded me a little bit of Jarhead, which I watched when I was in high school, and I wanted a war film, and I was very disappointed because it was not, you know, Saving Private Ryan or Black Hawk Down. It was very boring, and now that I'm older, I'm actually interested in the boring side of it. It's also a, a bank robbery film. And I'm, I'm actually really interested to see the Russo brothers play with real stakes and real characters that are humans in the human real world um, and try to play with American characters going through American problems. This is actually kind of exactly what I wanted to see from someone who went and made a bunch of money and now gets to launch their own studio with the first look deal is I, I want to see you try to tell a human story that's down to level that has... The, those things that you always repeat, which is like, where's the human? Where's the stakes? And this actually has that. So I'm really interested in this. I don't think I'm going to love it. I don't think it's going to be my top 10. But I'm probably going to respond pretty positively to it. And I'm very interested to see this version of Tom Holland. How about you? I actually don't think the chances are great that I'll check this one out. Um, I don't know why. It, it feels very commercial. I don't know why mm-hmm. I watched this trailer. It just feels more like a product to me than oh. just cinematic art um uh, it, it feels um he just feels it very content. commercial Th- that is accurate it does very much feel like content um i don't know there's kind of this mix of sentimentality and self-awareness right he's talking to us uh, from the other side of death probably. yeah I, I i don't know that 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 appeals to me right off the bat that kind of feels like a trope lifted like from a comic book movie like i was i just now got around to birds of prey which i know they did not do but i don't know this doesn't feel that human to me actually um i i completely understand what you're saying about it coming down to earth quite literally almost mm-hmm. after doing the comic book movies but in terms of it um being something that I think will likely speak to me, I, I don't know. I I wouldn't put big money on it. Um, I would also not put money on it speaking to me, but rather like this being an interesting first step in broadening their oeuvre. Yeah, for sure. But I don't know. There are there are plenty of other things that I think I'm more interested in than seeing the Russo brothers, you know, do something other than a comic book movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure Hong Sang Soo has another 2012 film that's just now getting an American release that we could probably. The Woman Who Ran. I'm waiting for it. It's already on my top 10 for this year. Um, all right. Well, let's take a, a pivot from the Rousseau Brothers Cherry and go into Pele, the Netflix documentary film. Sempre me procuram para ver se posso apoiar um lado ou outro. E no meio daquilo tudo, um oásis de esperança que foi a Copa de 70. Naquele momento, 
Aí eu não queria ser Pelé. Mas o Brasil é o meu país. Significa tudo pra mim. Pelé foi tudo. Acho que o grande presente que você ganha na vitória não é a joia, né? É o alívio mesmo. Alright, Michael, that was the trailer for the Netflix documentary Pele. What are your thoughts? Well, sports documentaries are not the first kind of movies that I go to on any given night. That said, I'm going to watch one. I think soccer is actually one of the sports that I am more inclined to uh, check out. And I know zero about Pele. I think I'll probably learn something should I decide to do it. I think the archival footage looks pretty great. I think it's really just uh, clean, kind of uh, impressive looking footage. Um, I think it looks cool. I think it'll just be a matter of mood for me, to be honest, on any given night. If I decide that I want to learn more about Pele, um, I could kind of go either way on this one. What about you? Yeah, I think I'd echo that a little bit less heartily. Um, mm. I I don't think you did, but I, I watched uh, Diego Maradona mm. um, previously. I Was that last year? I forget which year it was my top documentary. The years are kind of blending, especially post-Sundance here in my brain. But um, the way that Asif Kapadia had edited Diego Maradona and introduced the context of him as a soccer player, both as kind of the the representation of an entire nation on a, on a soccer team, but also as this, like, um, this martyr, ostensibly. Um, it, it was very, very interesting how he framed it. And it, it's one of the rare documentaries that makes me interested in who this person was out and, and what they had to go to as, go through as a human, um, due to local circumstance outside of the field. And I don't think I'm going to care about Pele's life outside the field, to be honest. I understand that he's the hero of Brazil and Brazil was going through a hard time or whatever. But I I mean, I'm honestly not that interested in like Muhammad Ali. You know, like I, I like mm. him. I, I like a lot of the things he said. I think he's a, a good person. But I'm not that interested in his historical... Uh, resonance uh, on America because there's so many other representatives mm. and it's such a, a large country and there there's so many ideas percolating. Maradona was interesting because it was such a specific small region that he was speaking to. I think Brazil is a little bit one of those larger regions where, where Pele is going to say, you know, I said things that I didn't mean because they told me to. Um, and I just don't know that I'm that interested in that story. Um, I'll, I'll learn something just like you said, and that's why I'm interested in it. But the footage and the editing looks fine. It doesn't look like it's going to move me and change the way that I think about the world. And at some level, that's always what I'm looking for in a documentary is that amount of um, resonance to me as the viewer. Yeah, honestly, with docs like this that are about really specific subjects, especially people or sports players i kind of like to let other people check it out first and let them report back especially non or especially like cinephiles who are not into sports and if they give me the thumbs up well then i know okay i i might be it might be of interest but it's not the one that i'm necessarily uh you know yeah barging down the door to check out i i'm probably gonna prioritize this behind the seattle mariners one that peter Luza and mm, yeah, yeah. have loved um, I've heard that I, things, I didn't yeah. have time for um, it's very very long um but let's stop talking about contemporary boring pieces of cinema and let's talk about silent film let's do it <laughs> Orphans of the Storm, Michael. 
to quote Arrested Development, that's why you always leave a note. Good quote, good quote. This is definitely the longest of the three silent movies we watched. This is a... Did it feel like the longest? It sure did. Really interesting. This is a good two and a half hours of silent cinema, baby. And Uh, you read the title card or the, the, the dialogue card and then you're done reading it. And then it goes two, three, four, five, six. And now we're back to the scene. Now we're back to the title card. Two, three, four, five, six. And that got so brutal. Was not moving at breakneck speed for you, huh? Not in the slightest. Yeah, actually, I did find this one to be one of the more entertaining of the three movies we watched, even at a good two and a half hours. Um, This is D.W. Griffith. It definitely Uh, had the most people. It did. A lot of people. Big cast. Uh, Lillian Gish. And her sister, Dorothy Gish, playing sisters within the movie. The last film that they did together, as I understand it. Oh, interesting. Silent film stars. I'm sure that many of our listeners know of the Gish sisters and how they were silent silent era film stars. You know, Mm. everyone knows that. People just walk around on the sidewalks talking about it. Yeah. Um, I think I should maybe say at the outset that, I don't know about you, but I don't really apply some of the same criteria uh you know that i that i apply to modern movies when i watch this kind of thing um specifically like i reward subtlety when i watch a movie from 2020 not so much that is not as much of a concern for me when i'm watching this kind of thing it's not as much of a concern but it does get exhaustive Mm. like there's there's a certain point i i think sorry we're already gonna jump jump movies i think it was destiny where she walks in and is talking to to someone in the house. And in that same room is the person she's going to react to very plainly. Mm. She's in line of sight. She's been looking for this person, whatever. And then her eyes actually look directly at them. And it's mm. this giant 10 second reaction shot. And... I try not to like downgrade silent film mannerisms, but like that one just, it, it did not work for Pushed me. the limit for you. Yeah. 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 And so when those moments happen in this film, there's some of them, um, they got a little bit outrageous. Um, I, I think before we go too far, could you pull up a photo you took of, um, one of the cards? Just read it for the listeners. This is the only piece of, uh, out of all the films we watched, this is the thing that this is the film and the the moments where we fell most in line. I think. Yeah, that's right. So this is Orphans of the Wind. This is set during the French storm. Revolution or French. Yeah, Orphans of the Storm. Excuse me. This is set during the French Revolution, just before it erupts and during the eruption and the following Reign of Terror. Robespierre is one of the figures uh, involved in the movement, and this the one the one of the title cards we were amused by is. Robespierre, the original pussyfooter, a splendid regulator of other people's morals and affairs. So yeah, I, I bring up the, the comment about subtlety specifically with this film because we're literally getting title cards like this one where D- Griffith is quite literally... Expressing his view. Oh, 100%. Um, like, if, if you can't get down with that, like, right off the bat, like, you're, you're gonna have a bad time. Oh, it doesn't get... It doesn't shift, so if you don't like that, you're not going to like it. True. Um, but I think the craft is is kind of incredible to me, and really sort of, um, it just it feels very foundational. Um, it's epic. Yeah. Um, and I guess what really kind of blew me away is just um, how well it pairs the micro and the macro within its narrative we have these two sisters uh the gish sisters who become separated right as the french revolution erupts there in paris um and the i think the balance the movie strikes between intimacy and the epic is something we absolutely take for granted in big movies today um Mm -hmm. i think that's like kind of incredible actually how well that the movie pulls that off um one of my bigger takeaways i guess it it feels like a foundational film it feels large and epic i i told you it's like watching silent peterloo 
And I meant that facetiously with complete sincerity. You know, like, not only do I mean that, even though that it, it's in many ways different than Peterloo and plot and supposings and all sorts of things, it's this giant period piece. There's full-scale war. There's full-scale um, crowds. And, and there's absurdities, like a very clearly plastic head on a pike being moved up and down and up and down in the background and you think okay i saw it and then you see it for like another minute and you're like okay you're really hamming this one up and the the scale uh like you said of intimacy versus the scale of disapproval with the government um it's is just really interesting because it just feels once again foundational i can't think of something earlier than this that pulls this off eloquently and i mean that sincerely i think it's eloquent i think that through a combination of not being edited for my peculiarities and being outside of the time in which the primary way of speaking with one another was through letter via courier um it's it's really easy to overlook you know how communicative this was of people at this time and perhaps sentiment in America. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like it's a pretty suspenseful movie, especially when he's like literally telling you to like prepare for something via title cards. Like it builds to this big climax where the the revolution commences and the, the beheadings follow. Like, I think there's like lots of content to be entertained by in this movie. Um, I think it's pretty vividly... Um, depicted like i like that you know you're getting this very clear sense of his view of the the aristocracy and how decadent they are and like one of those early scenes where they're having a big party and you know you get those kind of master shots that show the lavishness of it but then the close-ups of the food and the costumes like i think that this is really um kind of painterly uh storytelling in its its depiction of the riches of the upper class and then the um, the struggles of the underclass. Um, yeah. I think it does do a better job of the underclass um, visuals, like inside um, the the first house where the, the Gish sisters are before she convinces her to go to Paris. I, I do think that those intimacy shots of the, the inside of buildings are actually really, really well executed. Um, I don't think anything feels quite so uh, historically moving. I, I mean, we we watched other films that kind of take place at the same exact period in time in which they're shot almost, or aren't mm. too far outside of it. Whereas this is very clearly a historical piece, having a historical conversation framed through an American filmmaker. And mm. the, the way that he pulls off those internal shots, I, I mean... It's not something I really noticed until we're talking about it, but I'm just, that's one of the things that I'm not going to forget. You could bring this film up, and that's probably one of the first things I'll think of besides the Gish sisters and learning that the guillotine is female and French. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. The the shots of Gish in particular um, are often quite portrait-like to me, especially, I mean, it's funny how he, he seems to almost like know how to shoot Lillian Gish, the main girl mm-hmm. better than the other girl the blind girl um and just how she seems to be glowing in some of those portraits i don't know i, I just so think those, there's some magical stuff there do you think that was purposeful because like the the main can see and the other one can't see oh i hadn't thought of it that way i honestly was thinking more about the fact that i think he worked more with Elaine Gish in oh, okay. like the wind and broken blossoms so i thought like he maybe just had a greater affinity for her but it certainly is possible that maybe he is just quite literally looking more um or, or, or reflecting something about their their conditions yeah um so i i don't know the the proper terms here and that's going to stem through all the 1920s films that we're talking about <clears throat> but the there's an adjustment to the aperture in the aspect ratio in all of these films. Mm. And it uh, it's really, really nuanced in every single one. There's less of it here, but there's it, if it's not the aperture itself, there's 
of cloth, there's a, a piece of metal, there's an object that they're placing over the lens of the camera to adjust the uh, the view of the camera so that you're only capturing a certain thing. And then it will pull out, pull up, pull off. Um, corners will come back in. We'll talk about this a lot more when we get to Destiny and the Phantom Carriage. But um, the, the way that this is pulled off in these films, all of them, it is so astounding and so moving and, and personal to the story that I can't believe I actually like had a really hard time watching how effective it was that we just don't do that anymore. Whatever is mm-hmm. happening here, be, like we, we mess around with aspect ratio all day. All day mm-hmm. we mess around with aspect ratio. But we don't just put our hands over the front of the camera essentially and adjust your view field so that you're only focused on the kiss right now and then pull up. Like, I think some Disney cartoons still did that when we were growing up. Maybe Lady mm. the Tramp had some moments like that. But I can't think of film doing this now. And I think that it's just such a unique um, flourish to the form that really informs um, their their careful thoughtfulness towards the storytelling. Yeah, that actually... I, I, know, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I don't, I don't know exactly what the word is for it either but I, I remember seeing those and actually thinking of the film we watched for a, a festival last year which was labyrinth of cinema obayashi yes. who, who was doing some things with in a very fanciful colorful brilliant kind of way um that i very much appreciated um where yeah you're just seeing kind of a cutout of what presumably is the image at large you know mm-hmm. it's just a circle within the larger square rectangle well, maybe brain, he right? did do that maybe you're right that was one example i could think of um but yeah not something you see a lot anymore and i, I agree it it does um it is pretty effective in drawing your eye towards something to really emphasize something it's a really um unique kind of form of punctuation but it's yeah it's all of that but it also it tells me how thought through the choices of the film are in a way that um shifting aspect ratios just doesn't do like i love nolan and like his aspect ratio shifts probably move me the most if damien chazelle's don't recently in first man um but i mean most of the aspect ratio shifts are like they're interesting choices but they don't tell me that you really have a voice of how the story needs to be seen mm-hmm. in quite the way that those choices are are made in these films all of them and um i think that maybe that's the thing that i was most flabbergasted by out of all Mm. these 1921 films is that Mm. particular flourish to the form yeah i remember it most in this film orphans of the wind interesting um coincidentally uh, destiny and the phantom carriage really (laughs) yeah i I remember moments in both where i was particularly Mm. moved more so than than here but i think that just speaks to maybe our personal interaction with the films yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I would actually, I think, be um, somewhat confident suggesting this to somebody who hadn't seen a silent movie before because I thought it did have quite a bit of suspense and forward momentum. Um, and actually a little bit less so with something like Destiny. Um, I don't know if it, it sounds like you maybe did not feel the same way. <laughs> I felt the opposite way, which is why I think that's interesting. I don't know that either of us is right. That's the thing about this. I don't get a sense that there's really a right thing. I do think that if I was going to come down in the middle of our voices, I think the Phantom Carriage might be the most approachable for cinephiles. I think the atmosphere of that one and Destiny have some kind of built-in appeal, right? Like something that's not scary by today's standards, but it, that is just in that vein has some kind of built in, um, but it's also referenced, draw. right? For like, sure. Um, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs directly references the Phantom Carriage. And then it has that really interesting, um, Spectre, uh, sup, uh, I, I don't even know what the, the right form there, um, where you're double air in your film to oh, create the, the Spectre, um, moment, um, multiple times, but, the the score i think is what comes down to my decision making more so than anything else on all of these films and to be honest the orphans of the storm has my least favorite orchestral i mm. i did not love it 
I think it made interesting choices, particularly with the maraca that they scrape on. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, it's it's pacing was not really um, original. It, it kept referencing itself. It kept recycling its own sounds, and it didn't really use its tone to build towards something constantly swelling. And I think that more than any other film, The Phantom Carriage did do that, which is why I found that more propulsive because the sound was cueing me in. And here I didn't feel like the sound had nearly as much to speak to. After the first 40 minutes, I'd heard every sound that I was going to hear. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would agree. Phantom Carriage but far and away has the best score of the bunch. It feels like that one's maybe just been like newly done or something like that. I, I don't I know that we I can... Saw, uh, well, I saw at the end of the Criterion version that I watched that it had been restored from two different negatives uh, in 1975. So it's possible that they rescored it then. Yeah, I mean, it just sounds so much like fuller, richer just plain newer than orphans of the storm um i I could i don't i have no idea but it just sounds like they were done decades apart to me i I agree that i i noticed that too um yeah i I personally don't have that much more to say about orphans of the storm is there anything you want to walk me through or down or um not walk you no not walk through i mean to me it just feels like the blockbuster of the three um you know this has this has action this has intimacy there's romance here like this is the more like full the the fullest picture of, of the three Intrigue, in a way a bit of a moses moment, yeah right With, um, um you know being royalty and not being royalty yeah yeah just kind of the the ancestor to the kind of like modern historical blockbuster i think this is like to me it's kind of it's kind of astounding um where you can watch some silent movies and they feel so, a lot of them can, can feel a little trivial. And I think this just seems like one that it's very easy to trace the roots of big movie making today too. Um, but uh, yeah, let's move on. I So before we do, I agree. The thing for me is being the archeologist that spends two and a half hours dusting those roots is a lot mm. less fun than dusting the roots of these other ones for me. Fair enough. Um, on to Destiny. Destiny is from Fritz Lang. Mm-hmm. Famously the director of M and Metropolis. Which I would say I vastly prefer both those over Destiny. What about you? I haven't seen M. Okay. And I don't know about Metropolis. I think Metropolis is definitely more influential. But to because Metropolis was, I believe, shot eight years later. Is that right? Don't know. Um, either I, I mean that this is as early of Fritz as I've ever seen and the the expressionism um so first things first I love the the German opera mm. as a genre this speaks to the germ the Germanic opera um stories you know um of Siegfried and uh Der Ring der Nibelungen and um the the older Norse myths um all that stuff is kind of tied in here because it is a six verse or six act song. I, I don't remember exactly what the term is that they use in the film. Um, their specter of death is, is a little bit more harrowingly older and, and weary. Um, he's different than the phantom carriage. They, they both speak very similarly to that, that death that I was referencing earlier. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't really know. I just, I like so many of the choices as a person that um, it spoke to me because I was already interested in those art forms. Yeah. I mean, th- th- there are, 
there are aspects of the visual language that I very much respond to. I mean, there are things like the the night sky and some of the dark scenes are like, you know, painted or something like that. And they look incredible. Um, but, you know, we have this frame story. We meet a young couple. Boyfriend passes away. The girl gets an opportunity when she meets death himself to, like, rescue him by uh, intervening. She three and, chances. And if she succeeds in any of the three, then she'll cut her, then he will cut her the deal. And this is visualized by three candles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's the thing. It's the expressionism of the story visually with the gray shadow. Um, just constantly doing that, that I just love that stuff. And I agree. I think like the frame story, I think has the imagery I like best the, the, the just nature of the beast is, is that it's very it's it's episodic by definition and mm-hmm. i don't think that does much for like just narrative flow for me i would agree it, um, it gets chunky i honestly like don't even really know what happened in the first chapter <laughs> i did not follow that very well i kind of like you i mean, like like the the first of the three chapters in the right middle? Okay. right okay um i like i like that we're you know, i like the change of locations we start in the like the middle east we wind up in asia um i think i like that one the best um yeah, Asia to me, has there was, the, there was the just, most, like, 2D shadow on the wall. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm willing to, to concede that I may have just not followed it well. Um, but this, it felt to me like there was just clarity that I that I was looking for and not finding. Um, for sure. I could not get into the, into the mechanics of this. Y- you end up going, well, wait, which one is she? Because you're trying oh, to track who she's saving and you're like, which one is she in here? I can't tell because when they're doing the Arab one, where they're all all the women have to wear a face covering, you literally can't tell which one she is until she's handing a dagger to someone to stab. Yeah, the the person that she wants, and um, I mean, since we're talking about the entire film, she fails every single time. Right? Yeah, and we we watch the visualization of that, and that's what I love about Lang's expressionism is. There's, he finds a way to frame the reality of the story into a small, permanent image that people can see. And I don't think Orphans of the Storm did that. I don't think it had small moments where you can expressionistically tell me the entire story in an image. And that's what's interesting about The Phantom Carriage with its clock. That's what's interesting about this film with its candles um, and its constant... um, coming back to kind of the flame. And eventually, after she fails all these times, she strikes a deal with Death, uh, who is a very Germanic-looking figure, um, to trade a soul for her boyfriend, essentially. And she goes to kind of the neighborhood elderly flophouse. And everyone's talking about how they hate themselves and how living is a a wearisome task and they're exhausted. She asks them which one will trade your soul for which one will, will of you will give me your soul, and they all run upstairs. Yeah, and it's this great moment of fear. I'm I'm never gonna forget kind of the comedicness of it. And when they do so, the slowest one knocks over a candle once again. Boom! We're back into the expressionism of the flame and the candle. This thing that we've been referencing earlier. That's something that I I didn't get from D.W. Griffith's Orphans of the Storm. I think that he had an interesting allegory to the guillotine and and, um, how he was framing that constantly as femininity, um, knowing that we're coming off of this with H1N1, um, speaking to that that death thing. But the flame here, I just, I I had so much to to grapple with. And um, everyone leaves the house as it catches on fire, and including her, and they all leave except for a baby. She goes in, rescues the baby. Death comes. She makes the choice to not give the baby to death, lowers him out the window, and then joins her beloved in the afterlife. I, I It's a very basic story, but I love that opera. I love that saga. Yeah, I, 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 I wish I just felt more continuity with it. I mean, I agree. I think this is more visually um, striking movie, right? Like Griffith is very clearly not interested in expressionism. Um, and I, I agree the images are more are more striking uh, in in Destiny. Um, 
and it, it, it's in a way it's more like amusing one for me from a mm-hmm. contemporary standpoint um you know just the idea that she's saying to these folks hey you're a bad dad why don't you just go ahead and throw in the towel and give me those years and the first guy's like get out of here and mm-hmm. kicks her out and closes his window um i also like how in the third story in asia we we see like a magician and he gets a letter and the like essence of the letter from the emperor is like i'm bored come entertain me oh and by the way if you don't entertain me i'm gonna cut your head off and then you get this great reaction shot um you know maybe i just i i don't know i I was um just on the outside looking in on this one I, i think i'm completely with you in the um visual appeal of expressionism just in general um i don't know that this is the best narrative um that it's been applied to for me i would agree and it's because i like the form of the saga that i i'm like okay this is not only something i'm deeply familiar with with germanic sagas but it's just something that i passively like so even if you do a bad saga the amount of sagas i see in cinema are so little they just seeing one makes me happy. So, you yeah. know, that, that can definitely boost its number. But um, building on that familiarity, I, I will say we totally subverted the, the first act, essentially. And um, what you've been saying is the third act is actually the fifth act uh, out of the six saga song, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And in the first act, Death comes to town as a man mm-hmm. and tries to buy a plot of land for the expansion for the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And through negligence of public planning and politicians, they end up approving it. And that leads to these consequences, ostensibly. And I will say that is the one similarity outside of the, the specter of death and groups of people dying is political incompetence from D.W. Mm-hmm. Griffith to this. There, there mm-hmm. is a small tangential uh, correlation in these 1921 films that is criticizing um politics at two very 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 different levels one is in france one is in uh no destiny is in germany uh right and then um the phantom carriage is going to be in sweden i believe Mm -hmm. um so we're going to three different european countries even though one of these is directed by an american director um and those two um the german one in the french film are both criticizing the power structure of politics you know 100 years ago some mm. things don't change. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. Um, my mind was just instinctively making more connections between Destiny and the Phantom Carriage, but I think that is a totally valid connection between Orphans of the Wind and Destiny. Um, you know, in terms of the, the things I was drawing between Destiny and Phantom Carriage is partly just uh, like how remarkably different that the, the the representation of death is compared to how we think of it today and how it, it there is a very eerie imagery in Destiny as well as Phantom Carriage, obviously, but it's partly just about like how exhausting the afterlife is in both of these movies, like both of these guys, even maybe even especially the guy in Destiny, just looks so depleted. He mm-hmm. looks um, like he is literally drained of his life in the most literal sense of the word. Um, and while the the um, it, it's a much more tragic kind of uh, depiction of death than I think we we often get um, in modern cinema. Um, which I thought was striking. Yeah. And I mean, that's building back into my kind of opening statement. And, you know, these are films made by people that didn't die during kind of a a large death event for humanity. And our minds, our philosophies, our religions, our expressions of art, our thoughtfulness, our everything was going toward trying to pick up and move on and make sense of the fact that all these people we know just died. Not just in World War One, but but after H1N1, the Spanish flu, um, for you know almost two years, and I I think that that specter of death, you, you know, kind of th- this double exposure death, you know, it's kind of what a lot of people described 
seen phantoms and ghosts as in that late 1920s through 1960s. And I, I do question whether or not, you know, people that had grief and that type of thing were then informed by the visuals from this type of a specter of death and just kind of made the stories in their head make sense like that because there there is something deeper to the the poetry that um, particularly Destiny and the Phantom Carriage have to say about the specter of death, not being someone who wants to take your soul, but someone who has to show up. Mm-hmm. They don't want to take your soul. They have to show up. They're just as burdened and uh, overwhelmed by this process as you are. And I think that that reflects the the common folk of they're coming to terms with these family members and friends being dead. And they're looking around and it's not like someone wanted to die. Someone just died. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't have much more to add to it. It's, um, more thoughts on Destiny? Or should we switch to Fate of Courage? Um, favorite scene? Destiny. Boy, do I... Uh, what is my favorite scene? It's probably stuff from the, f- the frame story. I know there are five parts, but, you know, in my head, I, I have, like, the three episodes and then like frame story essentially and mm-hmm. it's probably some of the shots where he first walks her into the room with the candles that each represent a life mm-hmm. um i think that's you know maybe the most uh effective kind of visual storytelling there what about you i'm gonna cheat i have two um the close-up of the candles all burnt down with the middle candle going out mm-hmm. and Death standing outside the wall of his new fortified mm. enclosure. And all these living villagers come up and say, you know, how do I get in? Where's the gate? He drives them all back by saying, you can't see the gate. Good Which stuff. is this great foreshadow. Because we still don't know how to see the gate. And then we see that only the double exposed dead souls can get through. And that's a good segue. The Phantom Carriage. The Phantom Carriage, my favorite film out of the three we watched. This has my favorite score has my favorite pacing. Every time I was done reading a title card, it only went one and, and then it would change. Um, Mm. Those cards, uh, very propulsive. All these side characters, but you never have a question about who's who, like you did in the previous film we were just talking about. Where is she? The girl who's supposed to be saving these these three men, right? You always know what's going on. Um, There's some amusing... um, ways of reading Swedish and English on the, mm. the nurses' outfits and things that, that definitely informed some some laughs. Um, just anecdotally, now it, it was kind of a fun watch and framing it against all that with some of the expressionism of the clock and the, the gorgeousness of watching these landscapes have a, a phantom carriage roll through. Yeah, the... Uh... The, the momentum you're describing surprises me. I do think it's a it's it's a very gripping movie, but um, for t- describing it that way is just interesting to me because it's the one that um so relies on flashbacks. Like so it's all told mm-hmm. through flashbacks. We move forward by going backwards. Um, and I think it's quite famously known for like the the complexity of those flashbacks and how they're not even quite in order, which I don't think I realized at first glance. Um, right, but but what's A to B? From beginning to end, what's what's the story? The I think story you, is yeah. who died before midnight last. Yeah, and, and, and that the, is such an easy thing for me to map. The, the 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 whole the whole moral of the movie, I think, is readily apparent from almost like the first couple scenes. Um, so even if it takes a winding path to get there, I think you know where the finish line is. Mm-hmm. But I mean, just knowing that you don't want to be the last soul to die, and then watching people become the last soul to die um i mean that 
is so it's not harrowing, but it's pretty dang close. Yeah, I mean that is it has a hook, you mm-hmm. know, in a in a very concise, uh, eerie hook that the other two movies I don't think do in quite the same way. And the best score. In the best score, I tried to like. I love the score. I try not to applaud the score too much, since it, like I don't even know if the like the score has changed so much with Silence that like I don't know if what this has to do with or I don't know how close to this is to the original anymore. That's um, true, but right that that bespeaks a, a deeper conversation of is the piece of art the piece of art that you watched or is it the piece of art that you will never have a chance to see? Well, I mean, I I can consider both the ideas in my mind at once i love the score i'll I'll say that but um you know i also am simultaneously trying to think about what what showstrom did i guess Mm -hmm. right yeah um i I just make that comment because i don't know what to do myself yeah it's like do i do i try to map out what it was like to watch this with a live orchestra that played different in every country probably or do i just let it be what it is to me now and love it for that. Because I, I mean, I really don't know what to do with some of these pre-1928, 1930 films that didn't actually go around with records playing on that loop system. Um, mm. you, you know, they literally would go out with a live orchestra or they would go out with um, like a music box. I think there was like a wind-up music box for some of the major ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and... Depending on which version you watch, you're going to get a different score anyways. There's two different ones on, on Criterion. One's mm-hmm. like by like a more contemporary experimental group, which I'm sure is great. That's how I saw Nosferatu was with, you know, contemporary oh, stuff. Um, yeah, you know, there's definitely something to be said for just describing and understanding experiences versus the, the text itself. You know, I do think, you know, we can do both. We can talk about experiences and the thing that doesn't change from viewer from viewing to viewing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this has some of the most like memorable imagery for me. I, I like a lot of the stuff in, in destiny for sure. But you know, that early sequence in phantom carriage where we get like this short little montage, that's more just like a day in the life of death's carriage driver, because we're seeing mm-hmm. him collect the souls that, are unrelated to the plot. You know, yeah. he goes and picks up the guy who's in the ocean and a guy who well, commits suit himself. It? It's not long after we meet him, I don't think. Oh, I thought that was in the middle. Um, yeah, that one reminded me a lot of the Night of the Hunter and the underwater scenes there. Um, when he actually goes and grabs him from down below. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, totally. The, uh, the top, though, I'd never seen anything like that when he when the carriage is on the waves. I oh just, yeah, I, I thought you were talking about. I was like, I've never seen anything like that. Nothing touching that. It's pretty good. That's definitely one of my favorite shots. Um, yeah, and on on the this score that I did listen to, you know, it's interesting that I mean, sometimes it works as sound design in a way. There are a couple moments where it feels like you're hearing the wheels just screech or something like that, and that adds to that idea that it is just that much. It, it is that torturous to drive this thing day after day because it would just be piercing your ears. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's one element of the score that I that I liked? Um, well, that was probably not part of the original experience. Um, yeah. W- what else struck you as interesting? I think that this has the most interesting um, repetitive um, stagnant object. Um, the first film, I would say, Orphans of the Storm, has a singular object as well that is the fulcrum to it. That is the guillotine. Um, that is the representation of death. That is the representation of freedom. It's the representation of a lot of things in that film. Um, political movement, all that stuff. Uh, destiny, the candles, um, you know, they're telling time. They're telling chances. They're telling outcome. Um, they're telling the story themselves. They're showing you a visual clue to the story. I actually fall most in love with the Roman numeral backlit clock here. It clues us in. It's constantly referenced. And we know every time we see it, we do the math and we're like, how close are we to this person being the last person to die at midnight? Whoever we just saw, because whoever we just saw, we're now seeing what time it is for them. And they're close to a death situation. 
And that just kept the propulsiveness for me. Kept, you know, when you're wondering who's going to die and there's a ticking clock, it's hard not to be uh, propelled. Yeah, I I could be mistaken, but I swear when I read this, when I, when I was just refreshing my memory and looking at the Wikipedia page, it said that, that it was released on New Year's Day in... 1921, I guess. That's foolish. That is so foolish. What a missed marketing opportunity, right? My thought exactly. Like, how do you not release this on New Year's Eve? I mean, I'm really glad because we got to watch it. <laughs> true. As a true. 1921 film. Third point. I thought of that. <laughs> Why wouldn't you put it out then? <laughs> what a missed opportunity. Man, I don't know anything about Swedish marketing in the 20s, but man, by a day, you really yeah. could have had something. Wait, how would that work? Yeah, you could have released it in Sweden on the first of the new year and still released it on the west coast in america and time for us to panic totally yeah 100 <laughs> percent. sending telegrams right yeah. across the world about this myth yeah um, turn on window anyways. swap and watch people panic yeah exactly <laughs> um i mean outside of that i was astounded by how they dressed the horses i think that that's one of the things that it's just this small flourish in costume design. Um, I think Orphans of the Storm undoubtedly has the most interesting, most extraneous costume design. But it's that little thing of putting these, um, some sort of a shawl that has these white-ish bones that when the film is double exposed end up making it look like um, they're, they have bones. And the space in between where those bones are has no presence of, of film content. Um, was really interesting because I don't believe that they trimmed that. It didn't look like it was trimmed white. It looked like it was just something that was um, made to have that refractiveness. Yeah, 100%. Um, when you see the original driver, George, I think, uh, you know, the difference in posture between this dude and the, the representation of Death and Destiny, who is tall and standing completely upright this guy like when he's driving the hearse or not a hearse i feel like it's a hearse the carriage mm-hmm. in those first few scenes like he's so hunched and i like you just sense that like every bump that carriage is going over is just going to be painful and, and the, again that idea that it is just agony to drive this thing i think is is even just in in how this dude looks hunched over the, the reins um yeah striking this has um my favorite editing out of all the films i think each one i was very taken by um how well edited they were but none of which really um spoke to me with the choices they made in editing as this film um there's these great moments where they're playing off of the fact that they're silent um openly just kind of mocking the viewer into not knowing what's happening um, most memorably for me is the scene in which she sews his coat mm. and the, the nurse goes to get the nurse that sewed it and he walks towards the door while she's talking to the girl and you have no idea why he's going to leave. What are they saying? Are they saying mm. something terribly offensive about him? Like, why is he approaching this door? And then she comes out and he starts tearing it apart and you're just what type of communication did these people have? Like, were these nurses evil? What were they saying? Mm. And then you're informed by that title card afterward. Um, Just really great choices to edit the dialogue after the scene so that you you go through all these different um, personal emotions trying to frame the context. And then they just kind of hit you in the mouth with a hammer and say, no, it's none of the things that you thought in your head. Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, I kind of lost my train of thought, but I know exactly the scene you're talking about. And the coat itself is even kind of a nice object, right? Um, Great object. Yeah. Um, I think I had missed some of the significance of the coat and how, you know, it was likely contaminated with whatever disease he was carrying. Consumption. Uh, consumption. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, until afterwards, when I was refreshing my my memory of the film and, and came across that, that certainly sort of um, reframes, like how I'm looking at the coat in certain shots and based on who's handling it even. Um, another good, another good prop. Right. And she, she wanted to mend it and he wouldn't let her mend it. And yeah, yeah. the consequence of that story wise is she gets the consumption as well and mm-hmm. comes to pass. 
Um, and that's kind of our big swelling finale climax. Um, I, yeah, I was the most moved by this one. I'm the most interested in rewatching this one in the future. I most likely to turn the score on independently. I'm most interested in seeing um, his filmography out of the three that we saw. I, I actually want to see all of them, but if I had to pick one, I am most interested in his because I had zero familiarity and I, every choice he made, I felt like, oh, you made a better choice than I could have ever told you to at like every turn. Um, so when, whenever you're kind of confronted with an artist that you have no familiarity with that's making all the right choices in your perspective, um, I think you just end up drawn to him. And that's how I feel about him. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly the one that I find most interesting for its like narrative complexity. You know, just the whole the whole fact that we start off with questions that we don't have the answers to. Why does she want this David Holden guy so bad when he looks terrible right shortly after we Notably, meet him? We should mention that's the director. Yeah. Victor Showstrom plays the main character, essentially, in David Holm. Um and, you know, I always kind of think about noir as being, you know, partly influenced by German expressionism. Mm-hmm. And this is expressionistic in a way. But I also, like, kind of in my head was connecting this narratively with noirs just because of the flashback structure, structure you know, which is such a noir trope. Indian um, noir death. I mean, such a noir yeah. trope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, lots of interesting stuff. Um. What was your favorite of her silent films? It's a really hard question. I just find each of these interesting in really different ways. I would um, probably say Phantom Carriage. I think that's, that'd be the one I most likely rewatch or Orphans of the Storm. Probably just not Destiny. I think I, I think I like those two better than Destiny. What about you? Phantom Carriage is my favorite. Then I'd go Destiny, Orphans of the Storm. Interested in all these filmmakers. Um, before we close out, the hardest question. What's your favorite scene? I really do like the one I already talked about, that opening uh, sequence. But we haven't even talked about like one of the more um, famous scenes of the movie, which is David Holm chopping down a door in his home to get to his wife. True. I, I texted you right after the film was over for me. Um because I had no idea that that informed it. So why don't you give the viewers a breakdown of what occurred? Yeah, that is just shocking to me. It is. It's. It feels almost like a shot for shock or shot for shot uh, remake that we see in The Shining of Jack Nicholson famously chopping down the door to get to the wife and kid. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. Just, it's. It's crazy to me that like that is one of the most like most infamous scenes in The Shining. But I don't feel like it is commonly known that it is borrowed from phantom carriage i certainly had no idea I've, i don't think i have ever heard any mention of that i i had never heard any mention of it and i like when i sent you the message i i i was serious but i was also joking because i i still haven't looked up if it's true but like mm. even if it's not true it's true like it's just so apparent that that is the wooden door the woman's on the other side of it she's shaking she's filled with fright she's frenetically filled with fright you know like um, it has all the same beats and moments. The, the specter of death is in the building. Mm-hmm. All this stuff is going on. And yeah, I mean, I've seen The Shining probably three times in theaters now. And I feel like I, I know a lot of influences um, to it. And I, I've watched whatever that room documentary was. Oh, yeah. And like never, not once has this ever come up. I think that I've heard The Phantom Carriage um, being referenced for some particularly like the hunchback of Notre Dame and the uh, the clock tower or something how they mm. how they shoot some of the clocks in other films um and um the use of the carriage and the the specter of of kind of a shrugging death I've heard but never this super hyper violent um you know attack toward a wife yeah it definitely feels like there are thematic connections to be made too just you know these are stories about small family a small family that's torn apart by the by the actions of the father mm-hmm. um, he's quite literally diseased in phantom carriage and he, he has the possibility of you know infecting them um whereas like, he is more more uh psychologically uh uh violent in uh the shining or psychologically troubled whatever 
Right, and, but like in The Shining, remember the ghosts from the past and the picture and Jack Nicholson mm-hmm. in that? Like, I don't know. There's just so much more that this may have influenced. And I, For sure. I almost wonder if Kubrick just like didn't tell anyone because he only wanted people that knew to know. And like, that might be why. Because, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I know this is one that's watched, but I don't know that it's one that I hear discussed often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. But what is your favorite scene? Oh, that's right. Dang it. I thought we were getting distracted. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, My favorite scene. I'm just going to cheat. I'm just going to cheat. It's it's both the underwater scene where, you know, you're, you've built up watching it go on the waves. The waves have this white foam, so it's very hard to see the carriage in front of it. So you really have to look and that pulls you in and it pulls you in. Then all of a sudden you're at a totally different scene. And it takes you a minute to adjust and realize you're underwater and that's kelp. And wait, is is the specter of death in there? And he is. And he's pulling the soul up. Um, it, it's incredibly memorable and very, very interesting filmmaking that went on to inform Hitchcock and everybody else. Um, Night of the Hunter, all that stuff. And just the shot of a black knight surrounding a backlit clock counting down. Nothing about this film is as memorable as a clock counting down in the middle of the night and knowing that whoever dies last is cursed for a year. And on that note, we are out of time for today. Run! Go! Get to the chopper! We have to go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant. You're the best and we love you! And that's another one in the can.